Hi, my name is Gaddy, and I am an alcoholic. I'm also very nervous. But I'll, you know, I'll uh, do the best I can. I was told I was supposed to dress up for tonight, and uh, my suit doesn't fit at all, at all. So otherwise, I absolutely would have. My sobriety date is, uh, my last drink was January 21st, 1983. Um, and for quite a while, I claimed that as my sobriety date. And uh, 25 years later, I'm talking to a friend of my daughter's that's struggling with, with booze and, and another outside in. And going, but it's clean and sober. Clean it. Oh, fuck. So my 25th year was actually my longest year. I moved my sobriety date ahead two months. So my 25th year was 14 months long. Because one night, two months after I got sober, I went out with some people and did some lines with some people I didn't want to be with, having conversations I didn't want to have. And they're like, Daddy, I'm so proud of you. You're not drinking. And I knew right then that, that this whole deal was over for me, that I, I shouldn't even be there. But I was very careful to claim I'm an alcoholic. I never said I was an alcoholic and an addict. You know, as, anyway, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. But uh, honesty will bubble forth in time. So there's a, a lot you know about me because I've sat up here and claimed to be an alcoholic, which means I drank too much at times when I shouldn't be drinking and got into trouble as a result of it, and that wasn't enough to get me to stop. Uh, not unlike a lot of others of you who are sitting here for a similar reason. I had my, I grew up, you know, normal alcoholic mom, functional alcoholic dad. You know, they had their martinis every day. My mom would go into uh, mental hospitals for depression several times. And uh, it wasn't until years later that I figured out it was because she was alcoholic. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, just I'd come home from school and mom would be gone. Okay. And uh, so I, a lot of uh, what I did was I tended to fend for myself. Uh, my dad taught me how to do it. He wouldn't help me say, let's go find this out. He'd tell me what I needed to go do. I'd go do it and I'd come back. And that was sort of the pattern of my life in and out of alcoholism. I'm a really bad student. Because when I'm a student, that means I don't know what's going on. And I, I can't do that. I, I, I still wrestle with the student model, uh, working with a sponsor. Um, I had my first drink that I remember, other than just a sip off my parents, when I was 15. It was at a wedding. It was champagne. And uh, my younger brother was bringing up glasses of champagne all night long for me and my cousin. And uh, I got really drunk blacked out, passed out, and could not wait to do it again. That was, I mean, I just, I don't remember what it did to me, but what it did for me was I had not laughed that hard for that long a time in my entire life. And it was so much fun. Uh, my dad was really embarrassed, you know, as parents will be, their kids are shit-faced at a wedding, and uh, made me go to church the next morning. He had a hangover. I did not. I was like, okay, let's go. And one of my problems was that I did not get hangovers. I don't know why. 
Um, it, it really, there, I can count on a number of fingers on one hand, the, the number of times I actually remember having a really bad hangover. I tended to recuperate really well. I would, when I went to sleep, passed out, whatever it was, when I'd wake up the next day, I, I absolutely, I had to start over. Um, it wasn't a hangover, it just starting over. I, uh, you know, it, it, it was all, I just got shit-faced all the time. I didn't want to drink like a gentleman. It wasn't about cocktails. I was desperate for connection. I moved a lot of times before. I was seven years old. I moved six times. So every time I'd get to know some people, I'd be gone. And then I'd be gone. And I found later on that uh, an easy way to get a lot of friends in a new town is to find a neighborhood bar. And uh, for a couple of hours and buying a few drinks, I had friends, and I was connected. And, and that would be my entrance into whatever new world I was part of. Um, I was a bar drinker. I did not like drinking alone. I didn't want to be alone. I didn't like myself enough to want to be alone. I would say, ah, I need to drink. And I would, I would have to leave my house and go to a bar because I just didn't want to drink alone. Um, I went away to private school. Um, and, uh, I, you know, my first introduction was into drugs. Um, I'm pretty sure there aren't a whole lot of pure alcoholics here tonight. I'm just guessing. Uh, I was not a pure alcoholic. So my, my story started with drugs. And uh, my senior year of private boarding school in Pennsylvania, my absence was requested. And uh, that means I got thrown out, for those of you that didn't get that. And um, there were two of us from my hometown in that school. And we both, two, there were three of us in the school. Two of us got thrown out on the same day. He got thrown out for drinking. I got thrown out for selling drugs. I was cool. He was not. That's how my mind goes. Um, I, went, I got into all the colleges I'd applied to rejected me. Um, I finally got into school and... Oh, just how I learned my lesson. I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to use again. I walked into my high school to register after being thrown out. I see a guy in the hall. He says, Paul, I've seen you in a long time. Want to go get high? I went, yes. It, it was, that was my resolve because I was so desperate. If I'd said no, I would have been alone. If I said yes, I had someone to walk out into the parking lot with. That connection was just critical for me. So I ended up going to college and um, selling drugs there and drinking and partying. And it, it was just, it, I, it was raucous. I mean, I, you know, the, the number of things that happened, I ended up, these are isolated events. It was, but it was an ongoing deal. We drank, you know, boy, beer by the case of courts, you know, every day for everybody. And we were party central because I needed the connection. If you came and partied in my room, I must be special. And some of the times I could remember it. Um, it was a suite with a bunch of, you know, three rooms off a living room. I remember going to people and saying, this is really cool. Who lives here? And people go, I don't know. I go, cool. You know, it didn't matter. Um, I ended up getting busted in college for selling dope. And um, when I went to jail, <laughs> this is a little town, um, 
scratched on the wall of my cell was my dealer's name. <laughs> so I had the connection again one more time. Um, I, moved, I kept moving on, and it was very cyclical. Um, I could start over. You know, I'd, I'd, my drinking was I'd start with a beer, one beer, two beers, three beers, six beers, ten beers, cases. But, and, and eventually it always ended up in a blackout and getting into some sort of trouble. But it never got better. That it never go one beer, two beer, three beers, two beers. That didn't ever happen. And it could take months or it could take weeks between those resets. And in the meantime, there's always this undertone of a number of drugs. Um, you know, it ended up, you know, I was a little confused if I was an alcoholic or an addict. Uh, since I ended up shooting scotch, I just really wasn't clear on which I wanted more. Um, and that worked. You know, I ended up shooting acid. It works really fast when you do that. I don't recommend it. But at the time, it just it was like one other thing. Seems like a good idea. I'm in. I ended up in New York City after a run a, a year on a year on Nantucket Island. Now I don't know if any of you Nantucket's an island off Cape Cod. Um, it's a resort, summer resort, and in the winter the population goes from 40,000 to 4,000, and it's a very tough winter. All the restaurants close. Most of the store closes. Only thing that stays open is bars. And that's when I really learned to drink. You know, how to drive with, with one hand over my eye. Um, and I had a, a roommate by absolute fluke that matched me. And we would, wherever we were, we would come home and, uh, you know, we're both totally loaded. And we'd start to play chess. But it would be like randomly putting the pieces out on the board and then picking a color, and then we'd start playing from whatever, whatever position it was in. And at some point, because we didn't stop once we got home, one of us would say, I can't see anymore. Good night. And that would be it. And we'd do the same thing over and over again. We'd go to work. We'd do what we had to do. We'd come home. And um, it, it was a... A minimalist time, my world was very small. Um, the connection that I had was with those very few people. I was cooking in a bar, of course, um, short order cook. Um, we were not allowed to drink while it was during work hours, just not allowed to. Um, so I honored that because I wanted to keep the job. But boy, the minute I got off the door, game on. And I ended up leaving Nantucket and going back to New York, um, and I ended up at NYU, and I lived on Bleecker Street in New York in the 70s. <laughs> and it was a blast. I mean, I got to tell you, I had great times drinking. Um, things that I would, I mean, I did things to this day that I just remember so fondly. Um, you know, concerts I went to and people like musicians that I saw in the village and, you know, just being part of that life. It was a time when you smoked dope in the street freely. Uh, I knew where the after hours bars were. I would, I would say, I'm, go I'm going home. I'm not going to stop there tonight. I'm not going to stop there. And suddenly 
It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm coming out of the bar just trying to, you know, walk along the, the cement walls because I didn't want to fall down and thinking these poor people going to work, they have no idea how much fun it can be. And all this time I'm working. I ended up with a, a teaching fellowship at NYU. I, I don't know. They asked me to do it. And, uh, and, I, and I ended up also, I, I had a gig over off on um, Bowery on the east side on an off-off Broadway theater. And at the end of the show, everybody would turn right, which would be your left, so, um, and, and go up to this artsy-fartsy bar where the drinks were, at that time, four bucks, which was off the chart. And I would turn the other way down to Houston and Bowery where the men's mission was. And the bars down there were for drinkers. No conversation, no ice, just 85 cents, a glass of gin with a little bit of uh, tonic. And, and I'm thinking, I've got a plan now. When I get my master's degree, because I don't really want to work, I mean, I'm just there because they're paying me to go to school not because I had any real desire for that career. I look at these panhandlers and I go, you know, they, you could probably get a quarter every couple of lights, you know, then, you know just from panhandling. You, do, you know, that's like six bucks an hour. If I do that a couple hours a day, that'll pay for my booze if I'm living at the mission and they're feeding. I've, I've got a plan. Upon graduation, that was my plan. I'm thinking, in retrospect, it was not a good idea. But I, I entertained that for quite a while, really studying the patterns of the lights and where people were standing and where they got the most money because I'm a smart guy. I lived on a fifth floor walk-up. I would sometimes rest on the third floor on the way up for an hour or two. Um, it just... But I met a girl in my bar, my, my neighborhood bar, and she drank like I did. We went away for a weekend and to a concert, Bonnie Raitt, Grateful Dead, huge box of stuff to keep us going. And she drank right with us. I mean, stayed with me. I'd go, this one's a keeper. Uh, anybody that can drink and keep up with me, I, I want this one. And uh, we got married. And I realize now that was the beginning of the end for me, but I didn't know it until recently. Um, it got volatile. It got uh, her kids came to live with us, and so all, uh, that was just party central. You know, if we never left the house together, that didn't end in last call. I mean, if we left at 10 o'clock in the morning, it would still be last call before we left. Because neither one of us was willing to sit there for one second without a drink. If I'm empty and she's not ready to go, I'm getting another one. If she's empty and I'm not ready to go, she's getting another one. And that just kept us going all night. And it got, you know, every problem we had was my fault, of course. Um, and when her kids came to live with us, it suddenly... Two things happened. My mother got sober and 12-stepped me. <sighs> it's, it's embarrassing to even talk about now. But she had, uh, 
she brought some guy home from the rehab she went to. And she said, I, come on home, Paul. I want you to talk to somebody. And uh, so I remember, well, I think I remember what this guy said. I have no idea if it's true, but it's what I remember. And it was, if you're an alcoholic, and I, I don't know if you are or not, but if you're an alcoholic, you have a fatal disease, and it will kill you. You will die from alcoholism. If you don't die, die driving drunk, if you don't die because you, somebody kills you, because of something you did, if you don't die by committing suicide because of something you did, after you've lost everything, your friends, your family, your job, all your possessions, the alcohol will continue to rot you from the inside. It will destroy your soul. It will destroy your body, your liver, your kidneys, and your brain, and you will die a lonely, miserable, painful death. And that is a guarantee if you're an alcoholic and you keep drinking. Now, I have no idea if that's what he said, but that's what I remember almost word for word. But the one thing I took away was if you don't kill yourself because of something you did while you were drunk. And it occurred to me for the very first time that I might, because I drove drunk a lot, a, a lot, just a lot, and um, that I might kill somebody driving drunk and not die, because I was not afraid of dying. I mean, that was sort of the plan. It didn't, it had never occurred to me that I would live past 30 years old. Um, I always imagined myself driving into one of these bridge dividers, you know, where there's an exit ramp and on and then the cement thing in the middle and just plowing into that because I couldn't make up my mind which way I wanted to go. And it, it suddenly occurred to me that I might kill somebody and not die. And that was completely unreasonable to me. That started the beginning of my thinking, I want to stop drinking. Um, my wife's kids were living with us and one in particular, and I remember thinking, in this moment of clarity, because I had them occasionally, I, I was a maintenance drinker. I wasn't shit-faced all the time. I just had this ongoing perennial buzz that, uh, that I'm teaching, you know, this is the role model of what this kid's learning. And I'm, my demonstration to her is that you wake up in the morning, you smoke a joint, you put booze in your coffee, because the caffeine made me shake and I needed to calm down. Go off to work, drink all day, come home, had a good day, there'd be some extra outside issues. Go out with mom, continue drinking, come home, fight, go to bed, and start over again. And that was the daily routine. And I'm thinking that's the only demonstration that she's seen. So that party with a few other things, I said, I need, I'm going to stop drinking. I had called AA a year before with that, I have a friend with a drinking problem. Totally, they totally bought it. And uh, I'd gotten the location of a meeting, and I'd had it on this bulletin board for a year. 
And I went to that meeting uh, because I was done. You know, the, the, the part of, uh, is it bad enough? Because, I, again, I found lower companions, so I, I could always point, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad. And, uh, and I think there's two ways you come in here, with the I'm not that bad, or the I'm so bad no one can help me, I'm, I'm hopeless. And I was definitely the I'm not that bad, because I still had a cottage across the street from the beach, even though the, the neighborhood church was bringing us you know, gift packages for food because we couldn't pay the rent. Um, you know, I, this house of cards that I'd created looked really good, but it was a house of cards. And I went to this meeting, and it was a, a big circle, and I just sat there and cried. Um, couldn't, couldn't stop. I mean, all of a sudden, there was this flood of reality because I didn't know a lot of people that didn't drink. And to be in a whole room full of people that, that not only didn't want to drink, but were okay with me if I didn't drink, just resonated. So I just cried. I cried a lot for the first long time I went to meetings. But that wasn't the end. I went for, it was in about four days sober, I went to a meeting, and, um, and they were on the ninth step. Making amends, you know, to all the all these things you've done, and you go and apologize, and and everybody's going on about the amends they make and all the things they did, and and I'm like three days sober, and no one came up to me and said, "Don't worry about it. All you need to do is not drink today." So if you're new here and you're at a meeting that's talking about the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, twelfth step. Don't, don't even, don't worry about it. Just don't drink today. And I'll, I, I will always call that out because I freaked out so much over the thought of making amends with three days sober that I stopped. I went back to drinking for a few more months. And it was January 21st, 83, when I finally had my last drink. So if you're new here, you have one job, don't drink today. Get a sponsor. Do the steps. The steps are written in order. One first. Then nine. Two, three, four, five. Up, you know, nine is way down the road. <laughs> it's a, by the time you're ready for the ninth step, they flow. So I got a sponsor. My first two sponsors went out. It, I had to figure out at that time that if I wanted to stay sober, it really was going to be on me. I, like I can't do it alone, but I don't get to use this. Oh, my sponsor went out. My sponsor's not calling me back. All of the whiny shit that I hear and have heard, even then, it was like, but I want to stay sober. What, what do I need to do to get sober? And each one of them, before they left their chair empty, had given me something really special. The first one, you know, the, the, the main thing was don't drink. No matter what. No matter what. That's, my, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. You don't drink no matter what. And the phrase we use is even if your ass falls off. But it, it's, it even it held me in good stead because I would have these intense feelings. 
oh, but I don't drink no matter what. And that was just the, the given. So I had to find some other way of dealing with all the stuff that was going on. He said um, the reason he doesn't have one beer is that if it tasted good, he'd be off and running. If it tasted bad, it would have been a waste of time. And it, so it, I'm a logical guy. So that's a lose-lose. There's no winning scenario for having a beer. That served me. The other, the next one, uh, I got to the second step with him, and it was developing a God of my understanding because he said you have to have a higher power. You can't, you won't be able to do this without one. Doesn't matter what it is, but the, the first 162 pages are designed to get you a conscious contact with a higher power. But I, I came in with the God I don't believe in, and we went through this, and he said, okay, I got that. That's, that's not a good God for you. Okay, what would your God have to be like? And I, you know, I don't, you know, caring, loving, double Ds. And, and I went through this list that that was something I could pray to, that I, that I enjoyed thinking about when I did that. And uh, he also had me get on my knees and uh, start praying every day for help for to stay sober. And I, my first prayer was like, okay, God, I don't know if you exist. My sponsor said I have to do this. And, and if you do, I don't know if you're listening or if you give a shit, but if you're not too busy and you are listening and you're open to the possibility, maybe you could help me stay sober today. That's it. And the amazing thing happened was um, I woke up the next morning and I had had a day. I'd had a day of sobriety. And, and it, to this day, I'm, I'm kind of surprised every day because I am an alcoholic. My normal deal, I still think about. I mean, I, you know, that, God bless the people that never think about drinking. I'm not one of those. I think about it when I have a feeling. It was like, how do I get rid of this feeling? I'll go through a list of all the possibilities and, and deal with it like a grown-up is way down on the list of possibilities. But sometimes I get there. But drinking is off the table. So he went out. And I went and found another sponsor. And we went through the steps and did the ninth step. And it, it wasn't as terrifying. Because each step, if it's done in order, if I totally admit that I'm an alcoholic and my life is unmanageable, that's pretty much a, a death sentence. Unless in step two, I come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. They, they need the next. Each one is sort of like a soap opera that leaves you lingering for the next step. And um, it doesn't say that you fall in love with them. It's just came to believe that a power could. And then once you actually think that there might be one that can restore me to sanity, Am I willing to do what it takes to turn my will and my life over to that higher power? And it could be a sponsor. It could be the room. It could be the big book. But just take direction because my thinking didn't help me get this done. Fourth step, I, I'm a firm believer of doing it quickly. Um, 
because I do it forever. You're going to go through the steps over and over again. To take a long time with a fourth step, it's, it'll never be perfect. Of all the four steps I've done, not one of them has been perfect. There's always stuff that, that either I knew I left off, and I bring it up next time when I was ready, or <coughs> that, that it was like, I don't even remember that. So when I'm sponsoring people, I say, here's your time limit. You got, okay, I know you're not done. We're going to do the fifth step now. And it's like, but I'm not ready. I don't have all, you don't have the rest of your life. You've got to get through these steps in however format it is. And you do the best you can knowing that you're going to come back. You're going to get another chance to do it better next time. Um, there's not a time where I read a, the big and don't go, has that always been in there? You know, there are sections because it, I'm looking at it through different eyes. A different person is reading it each time. I'm not the same person I was then. I'm not the same person I was a week ago, and I'm very grateful for that. Get through the steps. And so here's the part that I don't often talk about, is I left Alcoholics Anonymous for nine years. Um, I never stopped doing the work. I never stopped. I ne it never occurred to me that I wasn't alcoholic or that I would ever be able to drink again. It's just my path of personal discovery and the spiritual practice I was on took me away from Alcoholics Anonymous. But I always had people around me who were on the same path of personal discovery, sort of the steps, and that, you know we could look at each other and go, you know, you're full of shit. And it, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to do it differently. I wasn't getting what I needed for that growth through Alcoholics Anonymous in Connecticut at the time. I don't know why, but I, the, most of the people that were involved in that journey with me were also alcoholics um, that were not drinking, that were just committed to doing the work. I'd, even, I'd given talks during that time of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and A Course in Miracles, and now you know how everything is, is consistent, that the, the 12 steps are the foundation of every spiritual practice. All of them have it in some form. You just have to be doing it. Now, I had this wonderful environment, this relationship. I'd traveled um, mm -hmm. and done all sorts of uh, exciting things during that time. And I was in India and uh, ended up breaking up with my girlfriend at the time. And... Somebody called when I got back. One of those calls that come out of the blue. Surprise. Might have been God. Could have been coincidence. I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure that, that God had something to do with this. And it was someone I hadn't talked to in you know, five or six years. The phone call wasn't even for me. It was for Jeannie. And she said, you handle it. And uh, this guy offered me a job in Laguna Beach, California at the end of that call. Okay. So within a very short time, that beautiful structure that, that I had formed, all those, those friends, were gone. I, I was alone. Simultaneously, because none of these things happen in isolation, I'd had an employee who was in recovery and needed a ride to a meeting. So I said, sure, yeah, there's a good one over, you know. And, and I gave him this ride, and I said, oh, hell, I'll go to the meeting. And there was a bunch of people that I had known before. 
that were still sober, that had 10 plus years, and I, they were glad to see me, and I was glad to see them. And suddenly this spark of alcohol, the continuity of the relationships in Alcoholics Anonymous, that spark was alive in me. And a few months later, I'm in California, and I was lost and didn't know what to do, but the spark of Alcoholics Anonymous had been lit, and I ended up going to the Canyon Club and reconnecting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was 1994. I went to the morning meeting over there for you know five, six days a week for 10, 11 years. And the, I have friends today that I met very early on, and we've traveled this journey of recovery together. Um, all because I didn't drink each day. You know, I've got 36 years. And it just sort of it doesn't mean a thing to me because it's been super easy only because I only do one day. One day is an easy thing to do. I've just done it every day for an extended period of time. I've gone through lots of drama. I've, you know, I've lost both my parents. Um, my brother survived kidney cancer. Uh, met a girl, got married, raised her daughter, who's now about to drop her fourth kid. Uh, my wife died about two years ago. Uh, came home and, and found her. Um, I'd left her at 1.30, came home at 4.30, and she was gone. It was, a, it was not a shock. I mean, it was a shock. It wasn't an overdose. It wasn't, I mean, it, it was devastating. And two things that happened. I immediately called a guy that I knew who'd lost his wife in this program. Because if you're here and people share their journey, you'll know that they've survived it and not drank. That's the wonderful thing. That's why I'll say it, because if somebody happens and goes through that crisis, call me. I have survived it and not drank. That's, that's all we can offer. Uh, playing our top card, what, what's going on for us today? I'm going through a lot right now because it's coming up on the two-year anniversary. Our anniversary, our anniversary was May 3rd. Death was July. Nikki is about to have her fourth child, and it'll be the first one without her mom. So I know she's going through a tremendous amount, and you know that I cannot replace her mom, but I'm being the best grandpa I can be, and I think I'm doing a damn good job. These kids are just amazing. They like me. They want to spend time with me. PG, can we have a sleepover? Really? Don't you know? And and I adore them. I just sit there and and I don't post anything on Facebook except them because that's and they're close by. The other grandparents, we all get along. So I mean, so we'll do the holidays together. They're like this monster clan, and I'm like me. So it's I'm really glad they embrace me and not expecting me to deal with all 500 of them. And, uh, and it's it's an amazingly functional family in that they actually like each other. Um, it doesn't mean they have their stuff. They, Mary's one of 11 kids, and they just lost their first sibling who died at Charlie Street. Um, and so this disease just runs everywhere. Uh, a bunch of them are sober. A bunch of them are not. But it's a, an amazing thing. You don't drink a day at a time. When, when that six-year-old says, PG, can I have a sleepover, it's only because I didn't drink 
yesterday or the day before. I don't know today. If I don't drink today, I have no idea what, what cool stuff my higher power has in store for me a week from now or a month from now or around a year, years from now. I mean, this, this grandchild thing is not something I could imagine when I met Dawn and married her. Well, I stayed sober. You know, I've gone through my dad's wedding, and I'm supposed to give this toast to this, from this giant family cup that was champagne, and I'm flipping out. I mean, I am spinning. What am I going to do? Do I make them do grape juice? What? And I'll, do I say I can't do it? And I'm, and I'm like, boom, I'm going crazy. What happened was, was I got the cup. It wasn't, I was able to, I did this whole dramatic, and I didn't tilt the cup. So I never actually had it. It sure did look like I did. And everybody was happy, never had to say a word, and life went on. I had another sober day. My dad got married. Nobody was the wiser. I don't know where that idea came from. It wasn't me. I think that uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we just we ask better questions. Instead of how do I get out of this, we kind of ask how did I get here and not get here again. Uh, how do I be of service? What can I do for you instead of what can you do for me? What do I, what do I need to ensure my recovery as opposed to how little, what can I get away, how, what, how little can I do and still stay sober? What, as we do those things, we just come up with better questions. And they're not coming from me because my thoughts are always how little can I do, what can I get away with, what can you do for me? Um, I think the truth is highly overrated. Um, you asked me a question, and, and I'll start with, what do you want to hear? Sometimes I'll just do that. Second one would be, what will I say that will make you like me? Third one would be, what can I say that won't get me in any real trouble? And, and farther down the list, there's just the truth. Like you ask me a question, I tell you the truth. Uh, you know, it takes me a while to get to that. I, some people just do it automatically. I don't. I have to, when I do something good, I like, I really want a pat on the back because it didn't come naturally. But today it comes more often. I've learned that uh, I can stop in mid-sentence. If I'm about to say something hurtful, I don't have to finish it. I can go, and you, and just stop. Because something inside me is saying the only reason you're about to do that is to hurt that other person because you're in pain and you want them to hurt too. Now, Dawn was always amazed that I could do that, that just stop in mid-sentence. She, she used to say, what? What were you going to say? What were you going to say? And I knew that that was going to be a bad thing to answer. So she finally learned to go, thanks for stopping. <laughs> It's kind of like just because I've turned down a one-way street doesn't mean I have to go all the way to the end of the block. I can just stop and back up and move on with my life. I've noticed that's kind of the tenth step. I'm wrong. Make amends or don't make it any worse. That's the other thing is, is there are days that, that are very painful and uh, I, don't, I can't get out of it. You know, I'm in either a funk or I'm in trouble or something's going to happen and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. In, in real life, shit happens. Um, and I just, I can't do anything to, to make it better. 
my job on those days is to just not do anything to make it worse. And that would be picking up a drink. That would be causing pain for some. I have a whole list of things that run through my head uh, that would make it worse. Maybe not in the moment, but later on. Um, the big one is don't drink, don't use, because at least I won't have dug myself a hole any deeper than I'm in right now. So if you're new, if you're sober today, it's just a, you can do it. You can do it one day. One day is so easy. Not every day is easy, but even the hard days, it's just one day. Can I, can I survive today with this pain, with this emotion? Can I do it? Can I, can I get through today? I mean, I can get shit-faced tomorrow, but can I get through today? And yeah, you're here today. So anybody that's got day two has already stayed sober one day and knows how to do it. All you have to do is repeat that, and things get better. The, the Big Books talks about a life beyond your wildest imagination. I have that today. You will. What it, it also talks about if you don't stop drinking, you will have misery beyond your wildest imagination. However bad it was, it will get worse. If you're thinking you're going to go back to the good times, you're really mistaken. Um, I heard people, I've never heard anybody come back and say, I'm so glad I went out. It was just the most fun I could possibly imagine. I should have just kept drinking. That's not what happens. If, I'm an al if, if you're an alcoholic, it's going to get worse every single time. And we forget. We remember what it did for us. That, that euphoric feeling of that first drink as it goes down, it makes me feel smarter, cleverer, funnier, a better dancer, handsome, a stud. And I forget the blackouts, the jails, the, the, the people that wouldn't talk to me. I, I forget what it did to me. And I have to remember that so that I stay sober one day at a time. And my prayer is for you. I will leave one last thing. I was desperate. I know I'm all over the place, but it's just, it's still, my life is one. There's no, there's no general timeline for me. Um, I was desperate when I came in here. Desperate because I hated my life. I hated what I have. I wanted to change. I would, I would do anything to get sober. I am desperate today. I have that same level of desperation to keep this life that I've created. The friends that I have. The relations that I have. The ability to be of service. And I will do whatever it takes however many meetings I have to go to, however many outreach calls I need to make to ensure that I don't lose the gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. And I hope that you find that desperation. There's a moment in time between your that when you're not desperate for what you've lost and you're not yet desperate for what you have, where it comes in and, and you ask questions like, is this all that means? Just meetings and not drinking and going... No, that's not all there is. There is so much more. But you have to not drink today to discover what it is. And desperately reach for the future. If something good has happened to you in recovery, be desperate for more of it. And with that desperation, there's a likelihood you could have an amazing life. Thank you. Now do I walk out with it? Okay, bye.